Hi, I'm Maddie Orton. Welcome to Author Imprint, the podcast. As you know, we have a video series with writers about their latest works called Author Imprint. But here on the podcast, we pull back the curtain and talk to our guests about the nitty gritty of the business. Where did these writers find inspiration? How do they compile their thoughts and stay focused on the writing process? Earlier, I spoke with Becky Aikman about her book, Off the Cliff, How the Making of Thelma and Louise Drove Hollywood to the Edge. It goes behind the scenes of Hollywood in the late 80s and early 90s, and it tells the story of how the groundbreaking hit Thelma and Louise almost didn't get made. For our full interview on that, check out the video. But now on the podcast, let's talk process. Becky, since we just spoke about the book, I don't want to spend too much time backtracking, but give people a little bit of a tease. How remarkable is it that Thelma and Louise was made when it was made? Um, At that time, it was very, very rare for any movie to be made with a female lead, let alone two female leads. There would be maybe one or two films a year, and they were often romances. This was a big, bold action movie that also had humor and had women doing crazy things that people were not accustomed to seeing women do on screen. So it was practically a miracle that this movie made it through the system and got onto movie screens. If you haven't read the book, you really should pick it up. I mean, some of these anecdotes I thought were absolutely amazing. And we'll talk about how you got those later. But I will just say that it is a remarkable story and it is remarkable that it was ever made, I think. Uh, Yes. One of the people involved in the story, the agent who sold the script to a studio, said to me that what happened in this case is the kind of thing that happens in Hollywood once in 10 lifetimes. And it's why I wanted to do this book. I thought, how did this movie make it through the system? We could probably learn a lot from going through the process and seeing at each step how the right choices were made instead of the wrong choices. Absolutely. Um, You've spent much of your career as a journalist writing for Newsday, Business Week, New York Times. What brought you to the world of writing books? I thought it would be a great challenge to look at a more in-depth subject and have the space to really explore it. This kind of story really couldn't be done well in an article. It's it's a long process. As anyone knows in any workplace, how the decisions are made, how the end product comes about, there are so many steps along the way that I wanted to have a broader canvas to explore this. And I also wanted an opportunity to have the context of the time, what was going on in society at the time, Mm. and what was the state of Hollywood at the time, so that readers would understand just how much the characters in this story were up against. Yeah, absolutely. And I would imagine, too, that that having a book and combining that sort of with your journalism background means that you can source things and explain things, but really have, you know, the length and ability to flesh things out that, you know, you wouldn't normally have. Did you find your journalism background to be helpful in this situation? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, uh, I interviewed more than 130 people in the course of people this research. And so knowing how to interview people, how to draw them out, that's something that I've drawn on in my whole career. And it was very helpful in this because um, a lot of people's feelings about what happened were very personal and they were dredging up memories. So uh, the interview process was really challenging and really fun. 
Was it challenging to keep track of, I mean, you know, when you're writing an article, you have maybe, what, five sources, depending on the article, 130. How did you keep that straight and put it into any sense of order? It is a lot more complicated keeping the structure of a book together and not going off on tangents. Uh, (laughs) So I would always have to step back every day and say, what is the plot of this story? This book is really about a bunch of underdogs who go up against a system and triumph in the end. So what was the process that happened that tells that story? And I couldn't get sidetracked by too much of other things that people brought up that might be interesting, but didn't fit this story. Which I would imagine is easy to do because there are a lot of interesting threads to this story. Yes, it could have gone in a lot of directions. And I interviewed a lot of people who were big in Hollywood at the time. Uh, and they had fascinating stories to tell about their own careers that I didn't use a lot of that, but I used it all as my own background for what was the atmosphere in Hollywood? Why was it so hard for women? Why was this movie so remarkable? In writing in this exceptionally long form way, um, did you find that you had to tweak your sort of more journalistic sensibilities to, um, to write for a book? I think when you write a book, it's very important to know that people have to be entertained. They have to commit a number of hours to sitting there and reading this story. So I always kept in mind that it needed to be structured like a novel. Hmm. It needed to have a plot. It needed to have characters. The settings needed to be described in a way so people could feel they were there. And I had to portray actual scenes, like the first time Gina Davis, Susan Sarandon, and the director Ridley Scott sat down to go through the script and make decisions about... (laughs) um, where the movie would go. I I needed to set it in a place. I needed to introduce the characters. I needed to have the actual dialogue of what they said so that it would read like a novel. At the same time, it's challenging when you write nonfiction because it has to be true. That's where the 130 interviews come in. Every quote in the book is something people actually said to me. Uh, so you can't mess with it the way a fiction writer can mess with it and sure. make the story smoother and better. So there's a lot of challenge in how to present the material you've had and then make sure it's a good ripping story once you're done with it and people sit down to read. It really is, by the way. I mean, I, I thought it was a very quick and fun and interesting read. It was very uh, juicy, but not in an overly salacious way, just like an interesting way. I loved it. Thank you. I was going for that, certainly. Um, And I think as a nonfiction writer, the most important choice you make is the first choice, what story to tell. Hmm. Uh, Because you can't make it up. So if there had been a long, tedious story about this, and I had to tell it in a truthful way, it would be a long, tedious book. So I spent a fair amount of time before I decided to actually go ahead with the book to make sure that it did tell a story that would make for a good read. Yeah. Uh, Pretty quickly, it was clear that it did because there was so much going on in this story. Uh, The people making the movie were up against so much. Uh, There were so many conflicts along the way about how to stay true to this story and how not to succumb to business-as-usual Hollywood practices. Uh, I knew pretty quickly that it would be a juicy, and as you say, not too salacious read. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a little bit about the producer side of this, because you also had to nail down those 130 interviews. I mean, were you up against challenges getting some of these names? 
that was one of the more challenging parts of this book. I wanted to speak in person to everybody who was important. And I was very fortunate that I really did speak to just about everybody, including some people who don't normally give interviews, like um, Alan Ladd Jr., who was the head of the studio that uh, paid for the film, and Ridley Scott, who's a very busy man, and sat down with me uh, for several long interviews to explain his thought process. Uh, Gina Davis, Susan Sarandon, uh, the writer Callie Curry, all of them were very generous with their time. I think the people who were involved in this movie were all really proud of it. Mm. And so they enjoyed talking about it. And that went all the way through. I interviewed so many people on the cast and crew, uh, people who played the smaller parts, people who did the sets, Hmm. people who did the costume, the makeup. Uh, They were all proud of it and wanted to spend time with me to tell their aspect of the story. Sure. Now, your, your book before this um, was a memoir, which I thought was interesting. That must have been sort of a totally different turn for you to go uh, within yourself after you know telling news stories that are about everybody else. What was that like? Yes, that was very hard. Um, my other book was called Saturday Night Widows, and it was the story of how I had been widowed at a young age, and um, I got kicked out of my widow support group for complaining that it wasn't focused on how to move forward into the future. Uh, So I decided to use my journalism background and look into what studies show is genuinely helpful to people who have um, suffered a loss. And I found out that it was the opposite of what a lot of the conventional wisdom says. Really? That what's good for people is to push yourself to get out into the world, to have friendships, to laugh a lot. So I formed an alternative widow support group based on those principles. There were six of us, and I followed our story for a year as we pushed ourselves to have new adventures together and remade our lives. The the memoir that you wrote was then shopped around, I guess, right, for TV film opportunities yourself. Uh, yes. When that book came out, I was approached by many, many people in uh, – Hollywood, both in the movies and in television, wanting to option it. And uh, I was struck by how completely open and blatant it was when people would say to me, well, it's very unlikely to get made into a movie because it has female protagonists. And those movies never get made. It was one of the first things that made me aware of this problem. Uh, People said television would be different and uh, because women would be more television. And don't to, go to the yes. movies. <laughs> the feeling is that women watch television and not movies. So uh, I was already aware that there was a dearth of women's stories in Hollywood, but this made me aware of how, even in this day and age, there was still such openness about saying, well, it's a woman's story, we're not going to make it. Wow. So you finished your first memoir, you finished this book. What is next for you? I haven't decided yet. As I said before, the most important choice is choosing a story that will be a good, exciting read and still be true completely. So I will do a fair amount of research into some possibilities before I make a decision which one will make uh, an exciting book. That's exciting. Well, so I want to ask you, we have a series of five questions that we ask everybody. So um, let me ask you, these are sort of our highlight questions. What book made you a reader? Wow. I can't say that I remember my first book. I think 
when I was a teenager, my parents had a big, big fat book that was all of Shakespeare's plays. Mm -hmm. And it was in one volume. So it was tiny print. I probably couldn't read it now. Uh, but I sat and read through all of those plays and it gave me such a love for language. Okay, great. Um, how do you write best? I write best if I write fairly quickly. Uh, because as I said before, I have to keep the broader story in mind all the time. Mm. In this book, it was, how did the outsiders beat the system? And if I write too slowly, there's more chance I will take tangents that aren't productive. So <laughs> I try to write fairly quickly, and then I will go back and polish it at the end of my day. But I don't try to polish too much as I go for fear of getting lost in my story. I think that's that's wise. Um, it's partly my journalism background. I wrote fast when I wrote for a newspaper. I'd have an hour at the end of every day to write up my story, so I got accustomed to writing fast right. there. Right. I, I think that, that that like quick deadline, you know, being a deadline at the end of the day really changes your whole sense of how you write. Yes, and a deadline has a way of focusing your mind mm -hmm. on the main points. When you're doing a book and you have a long period of time, you need to maintain that focus. That's, in an artificial way. Yeah, that's smart. Where were you when you found out that you were getting published for the first time? Um, I was at home in my apartment, and my agent was taking bids from different publishers, and it was really crazy being auctioned off. I think there were nine bidders, and the, oh the numbers gosh. kept coming in and coming in, and she would update me as they got higher, and it was very exciting, but it freaked me out, too. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, what advice do you have for aspiring authors? It's a mistake to think that there's such a thing as writer's block, that you need inspiration to strike from out of the blue. Hmm. And if you don't have it, you should give up for the day and go do something else. You have to sit there. You have to work at it. If you don't have a brilliant inspiration, write what you do have and fix it later. Um when I was in newspapers, you couldn't run a blank space at the end of the day. <laughs> so even if you thought what you were writing wasn't great, you had to do it. And I think the same goes for people writing books. I, you often hear from people who say they're stuck. Um, you just have to write something and fix it. What are you reading? I have to say, like everyone else right now, it's very hard not to be too focused on the news. I, I do read too much of the news because there's so much happening and so much of it is disturbing um, that I'm reading too much of it, but I can't stop myself. You mentioned you've seen Thelma and Louise numerous times now. Do you feel <laughs> sort of just like linked to this forever? Is this a part of you the way it's part of Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis and Ridley Scott, do you think? Well, I suppose so, and many of the people who worked on the movie have been in touch with me since the book came out and they all say well I learned so much because each one of them was working on their little aspect of the movie and didn't really know what was going on behind the scenes or with other people <laughs> so it was really for all of them the first chance to have the whole picture of everything that's going on it's like in any office you know what you contributed to the project but you don't know what was going on in those closed door meetings that you weren't part of sure uh, so it's for all of them, it's kind of a 
a guilty little pleasure to look behind the closed doors and find out why things were happening the way they were happening. Well, I, I will say it was very much a guilty pleasure for me, too. I enjoyed it a lot, I think, from the perspective of the story itself, how movies get made and, and how far women have come in Hollywood and how far we need to go. So I really appreciate it, Becky. Thanks. Well, thank you. It was fun talking to you. Fun talking to you. And you can find Off the Cliff, How the Making of Thelma and Louise Drove Hollywood to the Edge, wherever books are sold. Next time on Author Imprint, the podcast. The electricity that I feel when I hear a story, there's nothing on earth more intoxicating for me than that other than young people. Young adult author Jason Reynolds talks with executive director of the National Book Foundation and friend of the podcast, Lisa Lucas. Let us know which authors you'd like to hear from and what you're reading. Follow me on Twitter at Maddie Orton, that's at M-A-D-D-I-E-O-R-T-O-N for the latest. And join the conversation by using hashtag author imprint. Thanks for listening.